Our speaker this afternoon is Dr. Sam Chan. Uh, Sam has a PhD and uh, studied preaching. He also is a medical doctor, uh, a surgeon, and is a uh, national communicator for City Bible Forum. Sam formally uh, taught evangelism and preaching at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Yep. Uh, he used to play rugby, but now he's too old. Married to Steph, has three cute boys and uh, a politically incorrect Jeep Wrangler that he drives around. And so uh, I'll hand over to Sam. Uh, it's a 90-minute seminar, and I'm expecting maybe five minutes back to me at the end. Okay, so welcome to this seminar. So this seminar has been advertised as how to preach in a way we engage our current worldviews. So I'm employed by City Bible Forum, and what that means, I often give public talks to mixed audiences in the city, either at lunchtime, breakfast, or at dinner. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my sample Easter talk. It's a talk I gave for Easter last month. And you've got to understand the context. The context is lunchtime. It's actually the talk I gave at Brangaroo when they had 200 workers at lunchtime. And one third were non-believers. One third probably hadn't set foot in a church before. And so how we can preach in a way that engages everyone's worldviews, both to a mixed audience, uh, to a mixed audience, and especially an audience that has never heard about maybe Jesus and hasn't gone to church before. So what we're going to do is this talk goes for about 15 minutes. So it's the talk I gave at Brangaroo to non-Christians, not in a church setting, at lunchtime to city workers, and it'll go for 15 minutes. And then after that, we'll deconstruct the talk. You can ask me any question you want about the talk, and I'll also maybe share some of the principles I used in writing and delivering the talk. And then uh, we'll go for about an hour, and then I'll hand it over to Al to give, for him to share his wisdom on this subject. So we're all okay with that. All right, so here is the sample talk. So I have three young boys, Toby, Cooper, and Jonty, aged nine, seven, and five, and they do typical boy things. They climb trees. They play Minecraft, they play Beyblades, but no matter how much I try, I cannot get them interested in rugby league. And I keep telling them, boys, if you want to grow up in Australia, you have to watch rugby league. So I sat them down and we watched the game. And I said, look what happens. This team hits it up for five tackles and then they kick it. Now this team hits it up for five tackles and then they kick it. Now this team hits it up for five tackles and they kick it. And they looked at me and said, but dad, that is so boring. <laughs> and you can't argue with them. It is boring. They're just doing the same thing over and over again. But isn't that what we do? We do the same thing over and over again. We wake up, we go to work, we come home from work, we eat, and then we sleep. And then we just do the same thing over and over and over again. And this is what we're going to do for the next 20 or 40 years of our life. What's the point? Where are we going? Where is the joy? What is the point of life? And so we might try to tell ourselves these things. You've got to do what you love. But how does that work? At six in the morning, every day, my younger son will yell out to me from the bathroom, Dad, wipe my bottom. Now, I don't love doing that, but it's what I have to do. It's what a father does. Life goes on. You can't only do what you love. And even if we get to do what we love, we might stop loving it. When I was living in America, my next door neighbour had a scholarship to play football. So I said to him, you're living the dream. You get to do what you love for money. You play football for money. 
And he looked at me and said, ah, oh, it's different. Once it's what you have to do, you stop loving it. So even if we get to do what we love, we stop loving what we do. So getting to do what we love isn't the solution to life. We start telling ourselves, oh, but you're special. You are very, very special. But you trying to tell me you're special, how does that work? I mean, I'm one of seven billion people on the earth. How am I special? That's like you trying to tell me you are tall. You're tall. And I think, I don't feel very tall. No, you are tall. You're as tall as you believe you're tall. Well, I'm still not very tall no matter how much I believe in it. And if I'm one of seven billion people on this planet and we're just one of many life forms and our planet is just one of gazillion planets, how am I special? And the problem is even worse when you're Asian because there aren't just many of us. We all look the same. So how are you special and how am I special? So what is the point of life? Well, what if the Easter story is true? Because the Easter story says this, there is a God who loves us, who made us, and 2,000 years ago he sent us his son Jesus God and a human at the same time. And when he was alive on earth, he did amazing things. He healed the sick. He spoke up against established authority. And he had a special concern for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. And more than that, Easter says he died on a cross in our place to save us. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. And one day he'll come again and set up a kingdom on this earth. And so if we're loyal to Jesus, if we follow Jesus... We are part of this mission. We too are trying to set up his kingdom by spreading his love, mercy and justice on this planet. What if Easter is true? Because if Easter is true, it gives us two reasons to live, at least two reasons to live. Well, what are these reasons? Well, the first reason is this. It's to be loved. If Easter is true, it means we can be loved unconditionally by God. Now, guys, you know what it's like. It's date night. You're with your significant other, and just at that moment at the meal, when the music is soft, the lights are low, and the mood's just right, she'll lean over and she'll ask you, what is it about me that you love? Now, guys, bah, 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 warning, warning, do not answer that question. Whatever you say would be the wrong answer, because you try to say, I love your intelligence. She'd be thinking, oh, no, now his love for me is conditional upon my intelligence. Whatever, I have a motorcycle accident, get a head injury, and I lose a few IQ points. Will he love me less? If you say, I love your sense of humour, she'd be thinking, oh, no, now his love is conditional upon my mood. What if one day I wake up grumpy and I don't feel like being funny? Will he love me less? If you try to say, I love your nose, She'll be thinking, oh, now his love is conditional upon my looks. What if I have a ski accident and lose my nose? Will he stop loving me? See, somehow we as human beings have this idea that love should be unconditional. We should love someone no matter what, just for who they are. But where do we get this idea that love should be unconditional? Where do we get this from? Well, we at least get it from Hollywood. Because in Hollywood, love is always unconditional. In romantic comedies, the guy will always love the girl unconditionally, just the way she is, despite her flaws. Every superhero movie, the hero is deeply flawed, and we love them just the way they are. 
even in action drama where we have anti-heroes. And just the other week, my wife and I saw American Sniper just for the first time. The hero is deeply flawed, but the wife loves him unconditionally. And that's the backstory. She loves him unconditionally. And that's how he finds healing, restoration and redemption because she loves him just the way he is. But where do we get this idea that love should be unconditional? Because if all we are is atoms and molecules, if all we are is just ribbons of DNA propagating and surviving, then love should be conditional. We should only love those who can give us a competitive advantage, who can help promote our survival. We should only love the powerful, the strong and the rich. And we should especially not love those who are going to hold us back, who give us a competitive disadvantage. We should make sure we don't love the weak, the poor, the marginalised and those with disabilities. Yet somehow in our heart of hearts, we feel that love should be unconditional and we should have a special place for loving those who are weak, poor, marginalised, disadvantaged and with disabilities. So where do we get this idea that love should be unconditional and even preferential to the weak? Well, we get it if Easter is true. Because if Easter is true, love is unconditional. Because God loves us just the way we are. He loves us so much just the way we are. He sends us his son Jesus to die for us. And in that moment, we get the switching of roles. God becoming us, a human, the powerful one becoming the weak one, the rich one becoming the poor one, the living one becoming the dead one. That's unconditional love and a special preferential love for the weak, the poor and the marginalised. And if Easter is true and if God loves me unconditionally, now that frees me up to love other people unconditionally That frees me up to also have a preferential love for the weak, the poor, the marginalised. It also means I can love myself just the way I am and I don't have to look for love in all the wrong places. So that's the first thing Easter gives us. It gives us unconditional love. We can be loved by God unconditionally. The second thing that Easter, and this is what the verse says in the Bible, this is love. Not that we love God, we didn't. That would be conditional love. We didn't love God. Not that we love God, but he loved us just the way we are and sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Unconditional love. We can be loved unconditionally by God. The second thing that Easter gives us is this. It means we can live for Jesus and he can live for us. These are my three boys again, Toby, Cooper and Jonty, nine, seven and five. And so my wife, Steph and I, we promised this wouldn't happen, but it's happened. We have fallen into the parent trap. And this is how the parent trap goes. Monday night is swimming lessons. Tuesday night is karate lessons. Wednesday night is football training. Thursday is band. Friday is clarinet lessons. And Saturday is school sports. We are maxed out. There's nothing more we can fit into our week. And even then, some well-meaning parent will say, they're not learning Chinese. They've got to be learning Chinese. They have to learn a foreign language. Otherwise, the two parts of the brain won't talk to each other. This is the most important time to lay down those neuro pathways to get the brains talking to each other. And then some other well-meaning person will say, "They're they're not learning the piano. 
Now, the clarinet, that's not a real instrument. The piano is a real instrument because you've got to play with both hands, both clefts, and that really lays down the neuropathways. So even then, as much as we're doing, we feel like we're not doing enough for our children, and yet we're maxed out. How did every parent end up in this parent trap? Well, Jennifer Senior, in her book, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood, she says one of many reasons is, in the West, we have this unchallenged mantra, and it goes like this, I want my children to be happy. That's right. So I did the same talk in front of an Asian church, and they all went, successful. <laughs> but in the West, we know it's this, I want my children to be happy. And the problem with trying to make your children happy, it's actually an impossible goal. Because you cannot find happiness. It doesn't exist as an independent entity. And trying to look for it, the happiness paradox is this. It keeps moving, moving further away like a rainbow. It's like chasing a unicorn. You actually cannot find happiness if you look for it. And so then we're chasing these circles, trying to make our children happy and make them more miserable because of it. That's the great irony. We think maybe they have to own something. So we give them an iPad. Now that just gets them entitled and addicted and grumpy. So then we think maybe they have to do something like sports, and so that just makes them tired, busy, and grumpy. Maybe it's something we have to drive them to, like band practice, and that just makes the parents tired, stressed, busy, and grumpy, which apparently makes the children more tired, stressed, busy, and grumpy. So we're just making each other more grumpy while we're trying to make each other more happy. That's the trap we're in. The only way we can break out of this cycle, according to Jennifer Seen, is to realise we actually don't want our children to be happy. Instead, we want them to be virtuous, of good character. That's a better goal, and it's a more achievable goal. So that got me thinking, if we've made the same mistake with our children, wanting them to be happy, maybe we're making the same mistake. I want to be happy, we say. Whatever makes you happy, that's what we say. When instead, our goal should be, I want to be virtuous, of a better character. But that only moves the goalpost step, one step back, because how can I be virtuous? Well, this is what the books are saying. Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit, he says we have to change our bad habits and replace them with good virtuous habits. But how can we do that? Well, according to Duhigg, we need purpose. We need a reason for doing this. Uh, Angela Duckworth, grit. We need power, passion, and perseverance to become better, to set goals. But how can we do that? Well, Angela Duckworth says, well, you need purpose. Stephen Bidoff, manhood. To be good workers, what do we need in our jobs? We need purpose. Well, if we're needing purpose for all of these things, can you see the problem? If the purpose, according to Jennifer Seen, is to be virtuous, but the only way to be virtuous is to have purpose, we actually haven't gone anywhere. What we actually need to make this work is transcendent purpose, a bigger story than just our own story, someone bigger than just me to live for in my life. And that's actually what the books are saying. Charles Duhigg in the end says, well, you know what? It needs to be not just any purpose, but transcendent purpose. Angela Duckworth in her book says, well, you know what? It's not just purpose. We need hope. And Stephen Bidoff in his book on manhood, in the end, he gives us a chapter on spirituality. We need a transcendent purpose. Someone bigger than just me to live for, a bigger story than just my own story. And that's what Easter gives us, a bigger story Someone else to live for than just ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus died for us at Easter. Why? 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves because we need a bigger story, but now we live for Jesus. He's the biggest somebody, the biggest story who died for us and was raised again. Jesus now gives us something to live for, Jesus, and he lives for us. So if I live for Jesus, he gives me a model to follow. He gives me principles to obey. And because of that, I can be part of his mission to spread his love, mercy, and justice on this planet. I too can speak up against established authorities. I too can have a concern for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. I too can have a concern for social justice. But it's more than that. Jesus lives for me, meaning his spirit lives in me, and he gives me the power to be like Jesus, the power to be virtuous. And that's our goal in life. Well, do you remember our original question? It was this. Really, what is the point of life? And today I've said this. If Easter is true, it's given us at least two purposes. One, to be loved unconditionally by God. And that means I can now love unconditionally as well. And two, to live for Jesus and he will live for me. He's a transcendent purpose in my life. And so a few years ago, I had to apply for a bank loan. And I remember the lady behind the desk was taking down all my details. And then she came to this question where she asked me, what assets do you have in your life? Now, I'm not from a finance background, so I didn't understand the question. So she had to repeat it again. What assets do you have? And again, I didn't understand. So she had to rephrase it for me. She said, what do you have in your life of value? What is valuable in your life? And I thought, wow, that is a deep, profound, personal question to get. <laughs> and so I said, uh, my wife. <laughs> and she looked at me like that was the dumbest answer she had ever heard. And I look back and I think, you know what, that was a pretty dumb answer. Because really I was offering my wife up as equity against the loan. <laughs> but I thought, you know what, it wasn't that dumb an answer. Because what does give our life value? In the end, it's not what we own. It's not what we earn. It's this, is there somebody in my life I can live for? And is there somebody who lives for me? And we all have friends and family in our life like that. But if the Easter story is true, it means we have an ultimate somebody in our life, Jesus. Someone I can live for and someone who lives for me. And that gives me all the value and purpose I need in life. All right, so that's the, the talk. So what we can do now is for the next 40 minutes, you can ask me any question you want uh, about that talk, engaging storylines, uh, uh, whatever. Yeah, Al. Sam, can you say, what, what, was this, uh, what are you going to invite people? Oh, yeah, so, so at, at City Bible Forum, what I did was, wow, today we've heard about Jesus and how we can live for him and he can live for us, how we've been loved unconditionally by Jesus. Now, this will only make sense if we actually know who Jesus is. So we've heard some information about Jesus, but really we need to meet the person of Jesus. And there are many easy, friendly ways we have for doing that. 
So I'm going to hand you over to the MC now, who's going to show us some of the easy, friendly ways we have for meeting the person of Jesus. So then he gets up and says, well, there are some networks of Christians you can meet with. There's also this course you can sign up for. Here's a book on Jesus, and here's a DVD you can have on Jesus. So, so that's how we ended it. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep. Okay, so I've got lots of things I can say about that. So let's see if I can tease them out. So in the end we go, what is the purpose of the talk? What is the purpose of the talk? What is really, what am I trying to move people to? Wow, okay, wow, that's um, like a 50-minute seminar. I'll try to make it a five-minute answer and then we can tease it out a bit further. I I think these days, because people are so pre- or post-Christian, I'll give you an example. When I work, one day I was at work and the nurse said, oh, can you help me with my son's religious homework? I said, sure. She says, well, he has to write about Abraham, Moses, and Jonah. I go, sure. Uh, She goes, where do I find information about that? I said, they're people from the Bible. She goes, really? And this is a white Caucasian Australian in her 40s who grew up in a coastal New South Wales town. So she's never heard of Moses, Abraham, or Jonah before. Says they're people in the Bible, so he can find them in the Bible. Next week, she turns up with a Gideon New Testament, and then she says, can you help me find Abraham, Jonah, and Moses? So basically, they're pre-reach. So I think people these days, if they're going to convert and believe, it really is a series of moments. So I'm trying to be one of series of moments in their life. So in February, I preached evangelistic in my church over all four Sundays, 20-minute gospel talk. And in front of me was a woman that my wife had invited, and we know each other because their kids go to our kids' school. And as she's listening, she's loving what she's hearing, and she's deciding, I'm going to keep coming now to, to these Christian gatherings. But for that to happen, what has happened in life has been a series of moments. She used to go to Sunday school, not as a believer, but I think her parents who weren't believers just sent her there so they could have the Sunday morning free without kids. Then she used to go to youth group, again, not because she was a believer, but I think her parents sent her there just to get the Friday night free. And then she used to come to the church play group because she had kids. And now someone's invited to church to hear the gospel. So I'm actually coming in as one of many a series of moments. So I sort of see this as one of a series of moments where I'm actually trying to do at least three things. What am I trying to make this person see? I'm trying to see that the gospel is more imaginable than what they first thought. So, so they walk out the door thinking, boy, the gospel is more imaginable than what I first thought. Then they realize the gospel is also more believable than what they first thought. And then they might also walk out and say, wow, the gospel is even more wise or beautiful than what I first thought. So that's what I'm trying to do. So if someone walks out the door thinking those three things, I think, okay, I've achieved my task. So I'm not necessarily thinking I must convert them because I'm thinking if this is the first time I've heard it. They actually have not heard enough to make a meaningful cognitive uh, conversion. So I'm trying to do those three things. Also, you mentioned I never mentioned sin or the... The cross and all that. So let's take sin. So, so what's happening here, right, is I think Christians have a lot of shibboleth words. Where unless you say this word, you're not off their tribe. So, so they're turning up to test you. So normally when you preach the gospel, you have the non-believers hearing the gospel. And you have the believers judging you. Like they're sitting there going, okay, is he going to preach the gospel? And then there are these red flag, badge marker, shibboleth words. And if you say sin, they go, Pfft. That's it. He did it. He said sin. He preached the gospel. 
done. And, and I remember, but and every tradition will have its different shibboleth badge marker words. So John Chapman, who used to evangelize in Sydney, said there was a tradition where you had to say the blood. And so people would come up and complain afterwards, you never mentioned the blood, the blood of Jesus. And I remember one time I preached somewhere where I, this woman comes up and complains, you never mentioned repent, never mentioned repent. So that was her badge marker, shibboleth word. And I'm thinking, I didn't mention the word repent. But I did say you've got to do a U-turn and change where you're going and start a new direction in your life living for God. So what I've done there is I've communicated the idea or the concept without necessarily using the word. And that's the whole premise of theology, that we can use ideas and concepts without the actual words happening in the Bible, like Trinity is, a, is, a, is an example. And Jesus does that all the time. So he often communicates the idea of sin and sneaks it in without using the word sin. So for the rich young ruler who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, you've got to just sell everything you have and follow me. And he can't do it. So he's exposed the sin without using the word sin, which was idolatry. Parable of the rich fool. Jesus never mentions the sin of the rich fool, because God, God says, you fool. Uh, but what was his sin? His sin was to be foolish because he stored up riches for himself, but was not rich towards God. So that's the sin, even though Jesus didn't use the word sin. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, what was the sin? Those who were self-righteous and looked down on everyone else. That was their sin. So Jesus exposes the idea and concept of sin in people's lives without using sin. It's more effective if you don't use the word sin. Why? Because the word sin, not only does it get defences up, but it has different meanings. So the same word can actually have two senses, two meanings to two different audiences. So just think the word dumb, thong, or gay. You know, two different senses. And one is helpful, one is unhelpful. So after all, you just drop the word. Because I'm not going to say thong in front of high school students. Because it's, it's just going to lead to a lot of unnecessary laughter. Well, Francis Spufford who was an atheist writer who became a Christian, he wrote the book Unapologetic to convert his atheist friends. And so it's a book worth us getting, seeing how an atheist convert now tries to convert his atheist friends, where you're not going to agree with every chapter, so let me warn you, you are not endorsing every chapter. But he has a chapter on sin. He says, when we say sin, Christians don't understand because we're so used to growing up to hear the word sin. If we say sin to a non-Christian, they're not hearing the biblical idea of sin. They're thinking um, uh, a naughty, um, mischievous, delightful pleasure, like ice cream, chocolate, or lingerie. That's what they're thinking. And it's just something you have a nervous giggle about and laugh about. And so we use sin. That's what our non-Christian friend is thinking. So then you sneak it in through your images, your analogies, and your illustrations. So sin, in my presentation, would be to reject God's unconditional love. That's sin. Like God's offering to you. You don't want it. Well, that's sin because you're rejecting it. That's like refusing the offer to come to the banquet. That was the sin of the pillar of the banquet. And it's also, if you need purpose in your life and you make anything else your transcendent purpose besides Jesus, you've made an idol. So you make your family or your job or happiness your transcendent purpose, well, you've made a good thing become the ultimate thing. You've made purpose become transcendent. You've made something do what only Jesus can do for you in your life. So that's actually sin, to look for purpose anywhere else besides Jesus. So in that sense, it would be... um, 
Sin was communicated, just not using the word sin. And then the whole idea of pre-evangelism versus evangelism. I think it's such a slippery thing. So, so, so just, um, I think, because um, I think the whole evangelistic event, we think can, should only be reduced to that one moment where they, they hear about Jesus and they push to a conversion. But we don't realize we're, we're, it's so much more of a holistic event than this. So it's just one of many series of moments that, that happens in that, pers- that, that person's life. All right, so, but I've, uh, we'll tease out the rest in, in the other questions. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, m- many things. Why 20 minutes? Because pragmatically, I've only got 20 minutes. It's a lunchtime. I used to preach at an airport chapel in Chicago, and we had to guarantee them as 20 minutes, because otherwise they'll miss their plane. We promised them, you're coming in, we guarantee you, otherwise we have to pay for their flight. So, so it had to be 20 minutes. And the other thing was we shared the chapel with the Muslims and the Catholics, so the Muslims were coming in, you know, so, so I had to be out in 20 minutes. So pragmatically, it has to be 20 minutes. But, you know, here's the thing. So, so we, we absolutize what's actually only cultural. So we make absolute what is really only uniquely um, cultural. So not... Oh, how do I say this without offending anyone? Um, so, 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 you know, you, Tim Keller says it's always a spectrum. Everyone thinks they're in the middle of the spectrum, and you've got the crazy loonies on the right who are more conservative, crazy loonies on the left who are more liberal, but we're the ones, the Goldilocks, right in the middle. And everyone thinks, so, so, so if, I, if I think 20 minutes is it, then I think those, those crazy guys who go for 40 minutes, they're just so conservative and boring. Oh, but these loony liberals who go for five minutes, you know, they're loose on the gospel. Shouldn't they trust the gospel to hold them for 20 minutes? And, and then and you can see people just picking an arbitrary number. See, it's an arbitrary number that's based on your culture. Every culture has its preferred learning span. And, and like it or not, in the West, if you do pedagogy, it's 20 minutes. It's 20 minutes. So if you run a seminar for more than 20 minutes, you've got to give them a break at 20 minutes. And each module, and if you notice, I had modules of communication, each module can only go for two minutes because that is when the brain span stops. So think at a dinner party, there's a polite convention. You tell me your story of Africa, then I'll tell you my story of Canberra, then you tell me your story of Perth. But we only go for two minutes, don't we? So just think, what is a module at a dinner party? That's actually a module of engagement in the Western society. And so, so that's, that's why it's 20 minutes. Um, so have a, does that make sense? So, so you, we've absolutized what is only cultural. So you imagine me now prescribing 20 minutes to all of you. You must do 20 minutes. Say, no, 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 it's different for every culture. You know? So if you did that in Africa where you have to go for three hours, you considered rude. Like, he didn't think we were important enough to give a three-hour sermon. You know, so... But you just made absolute what is really cultural. Yes. Um, I noticed you use a number of other texts yep. um, in your talk. Yeah. Do you do that regularly? Just like each time explain maybe different things. Yeah, okay. The rationale is well, so Paul in Acts 17, and Timothy Keller picks up on this. What he does, he quotes their authors first before you quote your own authors. So you look for common ground in their authors first, and then you look for your own authors. So you pull out Timothy Keller's reason for God again. You realize, oh, that's how he answers and dismantles his question. He quotes their authors first, their poets, their artists, their writers, and then you quote your, your own authors. And what you're doing is you're moving from common grace and general revelation to special grace and special 
But you, you're just trying to look for, for common ground first. Also, I share this somewhere else. I got this from Jonathan Dykes, who got it from Ravi Zacharias. People think at three levels. They think at the level of philosophy. Then they think at the level of arts. Then they think at the level of the kitchen table. Kitchen table is what you do. Arts is what you see. Philosophy is what you believe. So typically, if you come to an Australian and say, this is what you believe, their defences go up. They go, no, we don't. We don't believe that at all. And so we think. We think we have to go this way. We think we have to go abstract to concrete. Here's an abstract ideational, propositional thought. This is what you believe. Let me illustrate it with an example uh, and, 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 and here. But we actually have to go the other way if we want to be more believable, more imaginable. So let's say I came to you say, Australians believe in the notion of sacrifice. Everyone would go, no, we don't. And they go, well, yeah, hang on, hang on, we do. Because at the level of the kitchen table, we celebrate Anzac Day every year. And what do we see? We see more and more young Australians making these sacred pilgrimages to Gallipoli, to Anzac Cove. That's because we believe in sacrifice. To live, someone had to die for us. Now you've got them. But if you try to go the other way, they're not going to give it to you. So that's what I'm trying to do. So I quote their authors by saying, hey, this is what we do. Hey, this is what you see in your books. Oh, this is because this is what we believe. We, you guys, Australians, you believe we need purpose. No, we don't. Well, hang on. You do because this is what your authors are saying and you're reading them and you're believing them. Oh, yeah, we do believe we need purpose. Right. <laughs> Definitely. So I never know whether it's a leading question, whether you want me to... I don't have any idea. Okay, okay sure. Okay, yeah, definitely. So there are many, many metaphors for sin. So I think Henry Blocher in his dictionary of the Bible words or whatever it's called. It's been too long since I've taught in Bible college. There are like over 50 metaphors and words for sin in the Bible. The ones we're most used to are transgression. You break a law, you're guilty, you need to be forgiven. Uh, You've fallen, fallen short, so now you need to be reconciled. Maybe you're an enemy. So now you need to be reconciled. Uh, you're impure. Now you need to be cleaned. Uh, there's shame. There's dishonor. So now God has to restore you and show his face to you. Maybe you're dead. So now you need to be alive. Maybe you've been enslaved. But what have you lived for? Now you need to be set free. And on and on and on. Okay. And we could go on. So when I teach evangelism, we, we, we take out all 20. Uh, so the... the Big ones are transgression, you've broken a law, you're guilty, you need to be forgiven, uh, you've fallen short, so now you just need to come a bit further. So I think, this is what I've found, let's say I get up in front of a high school group of year 12 girls, as happens to me every year, uh, and, uh, at their school leaving chapel, and I say to them, there are laws that God has given us, and we have broken these laws, and we're all guilty, and we all need forgiveness. They are not looking at me. They're rolling their eyes. They think, we have heard this all before. And what are laws anyway? They're just arbitrary social constructs that you authority figures impose upon us as a, as a game of power to control us. Okay, so, so that's what they're thinking. But if instead I say, hey, there's a God who loves us and made us and we dishonoured him by not worshipping him and thanking him. Oh, there's silence. They think, oh, okay, I get that. And if you think about the, the apostles in Acts, 
how they evangelize. They go to the Jews who had the scriptures, who worship in the temples and say, God has sent you the Messiah. You killed him. You are guilty. You need forgiveness. And they repent because they had the scriptures and they should have known better. But in Acts 17, when they go to the pagans who don't have the scriptures, they say, there's a God who loves you, who made you, who makes your crops grow. He feeds you, but you're not worshipping him. And God has let this ignorance go on for a while, but now he's not going to let it go on. Meaning you've shamed him, you've dishonoured him, you haven't worshipped him, but now you better worship him. So I think that's one way. So I definitely now with post-modernity, I go shame, dishonour a lot more. Also falling short. Hey, hey. so, so just think in the, in the talk, it's the falling short model I'm often using. Hey, you're looking, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Just come here. Jesus got it. You're just falling short. Just come a bit further. You're looking for purpose in all the wrong places. Just come a bit more and you're going to find it. So it's a falling short model of sin I'm using there. The other one I like to play with is enslave. Whatever you're living for owns you and it's going to destroy you or you're going to destroy it. So if you're living for your family, so they're your trophy family, you will destroy them. If you're living for your work, it will destroy you. It owns you. But if you live for Jesus, he will set you free. So that's the enslaved model. Another one I like to use is um, self-righteousness. So the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, his sin was self-righteousness. He looked down on everyone else. Well, that's all of post-modernity here. Self-righteous. I recycle. Look at that bozo who doesn't separate his recycling. I recycle. I turn my lights off on Earth Day. Look at that bozo his lights on. And suddenly, suddenly we're judging everyone. I eat organic. Look at that guy. He's not eating organic. He's eating caged chicken eggs or something. So we've become very judgmental right now. So it's an incredible self-righteous society. So I reckon that, that's, that's one that, that works. Now, I was going to say something else, but I can't remember. Okay, I'll stop there. So, so this might be a chance to throw in something. Uh, I just wish they'd given me a bigger whiteboard. Uh, okay, so just here's, here's a good time to plug that I've got a book on evangelism coming out next year, and this table will, will be in it somewhere. And we talk about W, missiologists talk about W1, W2, W3, W4 approaches to evangelism. So there's a spectrum. And there are examples in the Bible of all four spectrums. Here, remember that this was billed as how to engage your culture storyline. So what is our culture storyline? Whatever it is, we have these four options. We can either come in and oppose it and say your storyline is wrong. We can undermine it and say your storyline is inferior. We can retain their storyline and just say, uh, Jesus has a better storyline for you. Or we can follow their storyline and, and, and trace it out. So it's subtle differences. But what we're trying to do here is we say, your storyline is wrong. You must reject it. Your storyline is wrong. You must replace it with Jesus. Your storyline is inferior. Jesus is better than your storyline. And here, your storyline is going in the right direction, and Jesus will fulfill your storyline. So here, the model of sin would be, you're a rebel, you've broken a law, you're guilty, you need to repent. Here, the model of sin is, 
You've made an idol of things in your storyline, and now you need to worship Jesus instead. Here is your storyline is broken. So now you need Jesus to restore your storyline. And here your storyline is, again, going the right place. It's just falling short. So you need Jesus to fulfill and complete your storyline. And so I think we've always been trained well in one, W1 and 2, come in and oppose someone's storyline. But you look at what the apostles do in Acts to the pagans who didn't know better, who didn't have the scriptures. They're, they're, they're engaging the storyline and telling them to come a bit further. So that means we actually have to know our culture storyline. So if you notice in the Easter talk, I identified several strands in our culture storyline. One was you got to do what you love, remember? And I deconstructed that. So that got sort of, probably that was a W3 moment. I told them, hey, we're always told we have to be special, but I deconstructed that. And so that was probably a W3 moment. Then I said, and we all need purpose and love, but we won't find it if we're just atoms and molecules. So again, that was probably a W3, W4 sort of thing. So you've identified their storyline, spoken it back to them, show you understand it, quote their authors to show this is your storyline, and just show, but by yourselves without Jesus, you're going to fall short. You're not going to make it. So Jesus is going to complete your storyline for you. And I've noticed... Geneva just put out this 60-slide PDF from McCrindle and Ed Stetzer, and it said now people are looking for purpose, transcendent purpose. And so that's one of the storylines right now. And, and fortuitously, providentially, so that talk was an example of how to latch on to purpose, people looking for purpose. So just while I've got your attention, so... Typically, I think we've always come in, trying to come in through the front door, showing people that they're wrong. So we've made ethics the barrier. You are wrong, and I'm going to show you why you're wrong and sinful. Then we've, so we've made ethics the barrier. We try to make salvation. You need forgiveness and eternal life. The, the entry, come, come, you need salvation. But what you're noticing People aren't sensing that. So, so we're maybe not using the most strategic front door. So the door I'm trying to use now, and there's a category, there's a third category in the Bible. There's ethics in the Bible. There's salvation in the Bible. But there's a third category of knowledge in the Bible, and it's wisdom. It's wisdom. So wisdom isn't what's right and wrong. And that's why Proverbs has that verse that says, answer a fool according to their folly. Next verse, don't answer a fool according to their folly. Well, which one's the right answer? Well, no, you're going to need wisdom to work that out. So I think what's happening is as Christians, more and more we can use wisdom to sneak in through maybe a side door into the non-Christian worldview. Because what's happened to the way people believe is this, epistemologically, whether we like it or not, rightly or wrongly, but it's the way the culture thinks, they work with it as well as against it, but this is how we can work with it. We used to think, I'm going to give you something that's true. So now I want you to believe it. And if you believe it, now you can live it. So that's application. I'm going to give you data. I'm going to give you propositions. I want you to believe it. And now I want you to apply it in your life. But I think now it works the other way around. If we can show someone that this is livable, both in our lives, our community and belonging, and as well as what we say, 
Then they start thinking, hang on, this is more believable than I thought. Maybe it's true. So I think that's how people wander into the faith now. They see it's livable, it's believable, maybe it's true. And then they use wisdom, and along the way they realize they need salvation as well. So that's part of how that talk worked. If you think about it, I'm showing you, I'm going to give you something livable. And you see how this would be a wise way of parenting your children as well. But it would only work if you have Jesus as your transcendent purpose. But that's more livable than what you have going on right now in the parent trap. Well, isn't that going to be more believable? Isn't that going to be true? So my wife and I made friends with this um, Chinese couple with kids lately, and they fell into the belonging of our church. And after a while, the, the husband said to the wife, we have to believe what they believe. We have to believe what they believe. So they're not asking, is it true? But they've just seen how livable it is what we have. So whatever they have, we have to believe it. I'll give you another example. I was speaking at a dialogue dinner, and during question and answer time, a non-Christian couple asked me, so what do you Christians believe happens to the soul when you die? And I felt like saying, well, it depends which denomination you come from. But I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, well, a standard answer. A standard answer is when you die, your soul gets to be with Jesus in heaven where he is right now. And one day when Jesus returns in body to this earth, your body will rise from the grave and be reunited with your soul. And as I said that, I thought, I'm not sure I believe this myself. This is the most unbelievable thing I've ever said. And then this non-Christian couple just looked at me and went, okay, yeah, we'll believe that. We'll believe that. Meaning once they've already seen what you have is livable, when they've already found belonging, they're happy to believe what is livable and gives them belonging. All right, any other questions? Ten more questions, minutes of questions, and I'll hand it over to Al. Yes. The big differences in my talk today, so much less assumed knowledge, so much less assumed knowledge, and, and I guess just exploring the different metaphors of sin and salvation. So, so, so typically what's happened is this. So you said 20 years ago, didn't you? 20, well, so, so 20, as we know, we moved 20 or 30 years ago, we were in the age of modernity, which has a very different epistemological foundation. It's a foundationless way of thinking. And now we've gone into post-modernity with a much more anti-foundationless way of thinking and much more community-based. And so modernity is asking, is it true? Give me an argument. Post-modernity is, is this workable? Will it work? So I'm, I'm, now I'm trying to show you it will work. Modernity believes in absolutes, so there are laws, and I will get into heaven because I'm a good person. And so evangelism was spent then trying to demonstrate, no, you're a bad person because you've broken one law, you've broke them all. So that was the primary strategy of evangelism. Here, post-modernity, they don't believe in absolutes, so they don't believe they've broken any laws. And the more we speak laws at them, we can if we want, but it's just the wrong strategy, I think, because they're just hearing it, okay, here's typical Christianity, preaching laws at me, trying to control me. It's a power game, imposing their meta-narrative on me. So I'm trying to show them different models of sin. So here they believe in absolutes, so you're trying to show them they're guilty, they've broken a law. Here, it's all about freedom, as long as I'm true to myself, I kept it real, 
And let me explain the big difference, and this will make sense. Modernity believed goodness was this external thing out of you. So then I had to measure myself up to external norms. Post-modernity has what's called, according to David Brooks in his book, Road to Character, and I think he gets it from Charles Taylor, we have what's called a culture of authenticity. A culture of authenticity where inside me is what's called the golden self. The golden self. And the way to freedom and liberation is to unleash the golden self within me. And that means having the courage to ignore what other people tell me to be. Having the courage to not listen to my parents, not listen to the church, not listen to established authority figures, but just be me, the real me. Not who you want me to be, but me, the real me, to be real, to be true, to be authentic. And this will take courage. This will be a journey. But if I can do this, that is my road to freedom. So that's their salvation. That's their gospel, the culture of authenticity. So I need to deconstruct the culture of authenticity. Show them you think you're free, but you're not free. So then I can show them you're actually enslaved. You're living to something else, someone else's dream, not yours. Or you're very self-righteous to think you are that way. Or you know what? You've left out the God who loves you and made you. So you've actually shamed and, and dishonoured God. So I think that's the big thing that's, that's changed. Obviously, less assumed knowledge. And we can also say pedagogically, people are concrete. Re- Here they're abstract thinkers. Here they're much more concrete relational thinkers. So they need stories rather than arguments. They need testimonies to show them it works. But I think we're exposing a different gospel. Here their gospel was, I'm a good person, I'll be saved. Here I'm a brave person who's had the courage to be myself. I need to show them, well, actually, no, you're, you're living someone else's meta-narrative. Yes. Do you think people care what God thinks about them? They would say they would not care because in the end, I am me. I could be no one else. And if God has a problem with me, well, I don't want to be with this God then. That's, I think that's what they would say. But I think then my strategy is say, no, 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 you don't get it. That all sounds very good, but this is God who loves you, who made you. And if someone said that about you, that would be very dishonoring. You're not honoring the God. You haven't honored this God. So that, that might be my, my strategy. I think I have to, I, 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 what I do is I always try to show them three things. So there's a logical sequence. I try, try that, I, first sequence, I resonate with them. I say, yep, 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 you're so right. If God doesn't accept me for the way I am, who is this God? I wouldn't want to live with him. But then the next step, you have to dissonate it. You say, but you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Show them there's something clashing. You can't say you don't care what God thinks about you, uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you want other people to care about the way they think about you. You know, you can't, you can't have it both ways. And this is God who loves you, who made you. So then... And, and then you fill in the deficiency with the gospel. So that's always my sequence. Resonate with your storyline, then dismantle your storyline, and then show, hey, but you need, you need Jesus. All right, I have got Alistair itching to come down. Is that right? But before I break, uh, before I break, Carl Grice, who's at the bookshop, is begging me, and I'm begging him to do the same, 
thing. I have this book called Preaching as the Word of God that just came out last year. It just got reviewed by Thamelios by Peter Adam. Nathan Campbell's reviewed it in his blog. Uh, Greg Scharf's going to, his review is going to come out in the Journal of the Evangelical Homiletical Society very soon, endorsed by Carson and Van Hooser. Van Hooser's even got this thing in the front. So it's not a book on how to preach, but it's a book on how to think about preaching. And I think it will free us up to be a lot more creative in the way we preach. And I think it will deconstruct propositional type preaching. And it uses speech act theory. So it's got all the buzzwords. And I think normally it's 35 bucks. We're offering it for what? $25 conference special. There you go. Can we get this one? No, don't, don't sit down. Oh, okay. He, he's, uh, Sam and I work for City Bible Forum. Yeah. And Sam is like our special forces guy. So Sam is usually speaking to audiences that are... What, what am I doing? First of all, I never need a microphone. I've got a foghorn voice. Uh, yeah, Sam's, Sam's a special forces guy, so he's, he's very often speaking to people who are absolutely like colds uh, the, uh, to the whole gospel thing. And when he spoke at Barangaroo, that talk, uh, a heap of those people would have never opened a Bible. But how do you go about evangelising people in your churches week by week if you only have two or three guest services a year, you know, like that's, oh, the special time to invite. No, 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 no. You should be evangelising Christians and non-Christians every week. So when you open the Bible, you need to learn, we need to learn to speak to two audiences. And if I could say, that's what, when Sam speaks at Bible Shots, as we call it, and that's a 15-minute talk, because if it's any longer, people won't come in their lunch hours at, in the city. You're speaking to two audiences. You've got the Christian and the, and the non-Christian, maybe a third of them aren't Christian yet. So how do you do that? Well, here's some thoughts. If you've got an outline there, and I'm going to, we'll bounce backwards and I forwards. Can go down. Uh, yeah, or I'm, if you want to jump up again, because you're going to get asked questions. Am I? Okay. Okay. Oh, I'll, I'll sit down. But... All right. Um, and I'm happy to get questions as well. First of all is this, why I feel like a fraud doing this. Um, uh, we have a tiny little church, or I don't know if you want, if we call it a church, it's a mission statement uh, station. It's about a kilometre from here, um, and uh, we meet on a Sunday afternoon. We don't sing. Uh, because if you go into someone's lounge room and out comes a guitar and the, uh, the red cordial, it'll seem a bit weird. So we call our church Nilsong. And um, uh, anyway, that's... And we have the same numbers as Andrew Heard does in his church. It's just our decimal point is two to the left. Um, I think that... Yeah, that's it. All right. Let me tell you, first of all, um, because of what we've been doing, which is, quite, which is very minimalist, basically we started with Matthew chapter 1, say, at the beginning of the year. We're now up to Matthew chapter 11. We just work our way through. It's a half dialogue meeting, half talk. Half of the, probably a third of the people aren't Christian yet. And then we have dinner together. So it's pretty high tech. Um, after a, couple, a few years of that, to walk into a, quote, normal church is a very strange thing. And so I can see what it looks like much more clearly now to be an unbeliever and to walk into a church at first. And I've got to tell you that so many of our churches feel like a club for Christians. People are nice to each other, but it's a club for Christians and it's hard to work out what's going on. And so if you're a pastor or married to a pastor or a senior leader in a church, you don't know whether your church is friendly or not because everyone's friendly to you, okay? Um, when they're not getting stuck into you anyway, all right? But everyone's friendly to you. The only way for you to really know is to get someone, an outsider, to come and visit and to tell you what it's like. 
so I had a particular job down in the Wollongong, down south here, and uh, I would turn up at churches to do do stuff, etc. And sometimes Kathy would come with me, and she would walk in at a separate time and wander around and deliberately look lost. And half the time, no one would speak to her. So you don't know if your church is friendly. Once church starts, it can also be really kind of um, feel like a club for Christians, and it's actually saying to people who are visitors, you're not re- this isn't really for you. And you know what? It's saying to your people, don't bring your friends. So the way that things happen, like I've got, you know, whether they're welcome, the singing, the prayer, the announcements, the sermon, everything can actually send a subliminal message. It's not really for you. Um, now, you've got to run church. And remember, this is the guy with Nilsong, okay? I've got a handful of people. But you've got to run church for the people who haven't turned up yet. I'm not saying run church light, and I'm not saying run a seeker service. You can run a a full-on theologically orthodox church, but with a little bit of change or thought, you can run it so it's friendly to those who haven't turned up yet. I went and sat in on a church plant, um, and uh, there were 16, 17 people in the room, but they'd officially launched. And the young church planter stood up um, at the end of the meeting and talked about the strategy for uh, their community groups and how it would be missional and how they'd reach non-Christians, etc., etc., and afterwards, I said to him, mate, what were you doing? Doing, saying that. He said, I was all right. I knew everyone in the room. There were no visitors. He said, ah, yes, but you just told all of those 16 people, don't bring your friends. Because they're so glad that, that what would have happened if I had, no, no, no. You've got to actually run your church for the people who haven't come yet. Now, I don't mean run it completely, but you, you just tweak things. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a men's fishing expedition on um, next week. Just see Bob if you want to come along. Well, who's Bob? Where, where is he? How do I... Well, because it's a club, everyone knows who Bob is. Right? Or someone stands up and says, oh, there's an evangelistic event on next Friday. Bring it. Don't say that in the church because you're just thinking through. Okay. Um, now, preaching, what I want to talk about. The problem is, and I listen to lots of young preachers, and nearly always they're preaching as if everyone's Christian there. And you know what? I bet they are. Because they're telling people week by week, don't bring your friends. And they say things like, we Christians, or um, uh, sure, there's something for non-Christians, but it's John 3.16 tacked on at the end. Uh, The other thing I've noticed is I've been an itinerant for 30 years now, turning up to... The days of the itinerant turning up at an event and preaching and people become just about gone. Because if that's all the church does to have me turn up or someone like me or younger or better than me, whatever, turn up once or twice a year, they don't have non-Christians there. Because it's what you do off the ball or what you do outside of those times will determine whether people trust you enough, uh, moved on in the process enough to actually come and listen uh, to the Bible. Now, let me talk to you about, um, uh, over time, preachers build their own audiences. It's who you preach to will determine who's in the audience. I used to go out to um, uh, Ningen, which if you're not from New South Wales, is far western New South Wales, uh, and I remember the, um, there was kind of a community church, and a big rough bloke who was a, a farmer, and I remember him saying, you know, when I, I hear most preachers preach, they preach like they're preaching to women and kids. And then I look around and they are. It's who you preach to will, deter, will end up, that you'll, you'll build your own audience over time. All right. Now, here's, here's what I think. It's part B on that, 
on that um, on that sheet. Let me. I'll kind of rip through it, and then um, more than happy if you ask Sam me questions. Week by week, the scriptures address the believer and the unbeliever, and I think call both to repentance. They call the Christian to repent in terms of walking away from sin and to trust Jesus and to become more like Him, and they call the unbeliever to cross the line to enter the kingdom and. Uh, to be repentant as well. Um, In your churches, your audience is listening, your congregation members are listening week by week to see, could I actually bring my friends to hear this person preach or would uh, would it turn them off, would it be a real negative experience? I actually think you can speak that most of your Bible talk will address both the Christian and the non-Christian and not in a a clunky way. Let me give you some ideas on that. If you think through the whole of the sermon, the whole of the Bible talk, from the point of view of two audiences, it'll be a great help. You have the believer and the unbeliever. If there's no unbelievers there week by week, start preaching to them or start preaching as if they're there and people will bring their non-Christian friends. They will. Why? Because they'll trust you, because it'll be comfortable, because they'll, right? Or if it's uncomfortable, it'll be in a thought-out gospel way. Most of the sermon can, can apply to two audiences. Now, I've, in terms of dealing with alternative worldviews, we've heard um, some gold here from Sam. Tim Keller's got a thing on, the, um, on iTunes, and I'll put it down there at the footnote, Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World. It's Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney. Unfortunately, I think Ed Clowney's died now. Um, he's got this great, great kind of old guy's voice. It's free. There's hours of the stuff there, and it, it's great. I've heard both Tim Keller and the man I used to work for, Peter Jensen, explain this. If you're going to dismantle someone's worldview, if you just hit on it from outside and, what was your word, oppose them right, or tell them they're wrong, if you just start that way, the defences will go up. What we've got to learn to do is to actually stand beside people, empathise with and say, I understand your worldview, and then begin to show what's wrong with it. You want to improve on that? No? Okay, that's all right. Um, so understanding empathy, stand beside them. And so you, you, know, you take the idea of the, the uniqueness of Christ. I believe that Jesus is the only way. I believe he's the son of God, and yet that's... In the Sydney CBD, that is a very sharp-edged issue. And you need to be able to show at the beginning, look, I understand that it feels arrogant or it feels wrong that there's a whole lot, you know, to say um, other religions are wrong and to say that. And then to explain why it is uh, that Jesus is the only way. Okay. All right. Some simple markers as well. What I mean is there's just ways of thinking about how you're going to address people that mean you can speak to two audiences. Um, Don't say, we Christians. You can just say, now most of us will follow Jesus. Or for those of us who follow Jesus, or most of us already follow Jesus. It's just said, I'm expecting that there'll be people here who aren't yet followers of Jesus. Don't say, we, most of us. The other thing is, I don't say Christian or or certainly don't say non-Christian. I don't call people Christians in in the talk. I'll tell you what I say. Now, for those of us who follow Jesus, or for those of us who've decided to trust Jesus, um, now maybe you're not there yet. Have you thought about, because when you say Christian or non-Christian, 
if, if, if you say Christian, those who are from uh, Catholic, Orthodox, Eastern background, or, or some kind of religious background, they're, they're associating Christian with morality. And of course they think I'm already a Christian. But just it's just a different way, a different angle of saying something. Follow Jesus, trust Jesus, any way of saying you're in the kingdom that they'll, that'll make them rethink about, uh, about where, they, where they stand or where they sit. The other thing I think is useful is this, is to assume that people are intelligent but uninformed. You don't have to treat, you don't have to treat, you don't, you don't want them to feel stupid, but with just a little bit of help, you can let, open the door to the Bible much, opening the door to the Bible much easier for people. Little things like, oh, if you're not used to the Bible, uh, the book of Jonah is found, can someone give me a page number? Or printing the, printing the Bible passage out so it's easy to find in a, an outline or a program. Um, uh, the level of ignorance about the Bible in the general population is incredible. Uh, I had a meal with a guy over at um, Neutral Bay, ran his own software company, kids at, um, a, at a church school, very smart bloke, and something about the New Testament came up and he said, oh yeah, the New Testament, um, like what was wrong with the old one? Why do they need to rewrite it? Well, I said, well, no, it's not exactly like that. Or there's two, two businessmen that I've been reading the Bible with, with Pete Caldor. I think the, both these guys have become Christian. They're both, one's 60-odd, one's just turned 70. Uh, they were away with us for the weekend. And someone talked about, oh, John 3.16. And both these guys said, what's John 3.16? So we've got to be aware that there's just there's a level of ignorance in the Bible out there that uh, we may not be aware of. Other markers you can give is things like this. You're going to quote Psalms. How do you explain what the book of Psalms is in one sentence to those who are biblically ignorant? Any ideas? Well, Psalms are like poems or songs in the Old Testament. And there's 150 of them. Psalm 37 says, oh, okay, I get it, right now. Or I'm going to quote Romans chapter 6. Well, now Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. Or, or Colossians, or uh, just, you know, whatever book of the Bible, you only need a sentence, but all of a sudden, oh, okay, I, I understand. The other one, we're at point five. Um, I've got a little rule with myself. Whenever I go past uh, the name of a town, if I possibly can, or a date, or whatever, I want to show people that this is not Mordor or Star Wars, that these things really happened. And so with that little home church, I've got a big screen TV. I just put, I put a map on, um, uh, on the telly and push a button and bang, there is, uh, we talk about Bethlehem. I can put up Jerusalem, Bethlehem and show, and what's even better is if you can put up the, the current Google map and actually show how far apart they are, that sort of thing. It just says, oh, this really happened. Uh, you can quote um, geography maps if it's history uh, it's dead easy to have a quick check and see in the New Testament, does Josephus or Tacitus or someone else mention this? Um, Josephus says all sorts of interesting stuff. And just a quick cross-reference to say, oh, Josephus mentions, I don't know, um, you can do that with history, uh, to mention dates. Okay, you want to talk Moses? Moses was a great prophet in Israel. He lived about 1400 BC. Uh, Isaiah, about 800 BC. Start plugging it in with, 
with dates and geography. And I'm going to do it really quickly, but just in passing it says, this actually really happened. Um, the other one is really cheap. You don't have to go to the Holy Land. Just Google the place at the moment and you can put up the ruins of whatever New Testament town they talk about. Um, all right, having said that, point six is very important. Beware of death by PowerPoint. Uh, it's a cruel way to kill people. Um, all right, uh, application. There may be, as you come to it, there may, there'll be particular application to those who are already believers and particular application to those who aren't. Your application to those who aren't doesn't have to be John 3.16 every week. Um, your aim is to show people, I think, that what it, what it will look like to trust Jesus, what it will look like to live his way. Um, the great sin of Adam and Eve is this, is to not, in the garden, is to not believe that God is good and not to believe that God is wise and so to disobey him is to find life. Calling people to faith is asking them to believe that God is good and God is wise and that in trusting him you will find life. And so part of what we're doing is showing that in all the different areas. And as you work through the Bible, there'll be all sorts of parts of life and so on that'll come up and you'll see the wisdom and the goodness of God uh, to show people that. Um, now, when it comes to, to finding life, I'm, I am not saying... Um, uh, baptize people's dreams and ambitions that's prosperity theology okay uh what i'm saying is uh rearrange um rewrite people's dreams and ambitions so people miss um psalm psalm 37 uh, take delight in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart it's the first half that's important isn't it it's once you take delight in the lord he'll give you the desires of your heart so it's showing people how to delight in the Lord, but it'll also show uh, that God's way is the right one to live, uh, the right way to live. Um, now, uh, okay. Now, I've, I've uh, rolled through that. Not everyone you talk to will be interested or, or up to come and hear a Bible talk. So I spoke at a thing down here at Malabar. It's about a 20-minute drive down there. They'd, they'd done their best but in a room full of blokes, I think they had two or three, oh, they might have had four non-Christians come along. And that was after weeks of effort. Why? Because great-hearted people, but they hadn't done the background work to get someone warmed up enough to actually be prepared to come and hear a Bible talk. Now, I might ask Sam to talk about what's the way of thinking through the process of getting someone from totally uninterested to actually interested enough to come and hear some baldy-headed bloke or some Asian guy talk about the Bible. Do you want to just talk us through that? Yeah, you <laughs> sure. do, don't you? Yeah, that, okay. No, you do. There's a, you see there um, at the bottom of the sheet the, the idea totally yep, interested yep, yep. to convinced. Oh, okay. Do you want to do that? Uh, is that the Bergen Bread thing? It or is. is. Oh, okay. Well, it's too small. Again, you're going to have to buy the book. You're going to have to buy the book. But um, So I, I have a friend. For the book. Yeah. I have a friend called Tim and... The beauty is Tim works in marketing, and a lot of Christians say, oh, marketing, that's a human evil tool. No, 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 no. God, you, Evangelism is God in his sovereignty using us in our humanity. So we have to be human, and God has to be sovereign, and that's how it works. As Timothy Keller said, uh, when Elijah built the altar, God sent the fire. Elijah couldn't send the fire, but Elijah still had to build the altar. We still have to do our thing. When God parted the Red Sea, 
God part of the Red Sea, but he did it through natural means, a wind and Moses holding his hands. So what are our natural means, including marketing? How can we move people from hostile to welcoming the gospel? So my friend Tim, who himself was once an unbeliever and, and became a Christian about 10 years ago, he works in marketing. So he has the job of selling you Bergen gluten-free bread. And there'll be a spectrum. So there's actually eight. But unfortunately, this board is in... This way. Uh, so you can go all the way from hostile to, um, hmm? oh, okay. to considering, but it doesn't, still doesn't work. Um, I think considering to open, to trying out, to one, two, three, four, five, oh, I'm missing a few, to using... And then finally, being loyal. So just think you're hostile to the idea of gluten-free bread. Ah, it's just for these organic, hipster, fad people. There's nothing in it. You start being, you start, I think you, you're open first. You're open, then you're open to the idea of gluten-free. Maybe there's something to it. Then you start considering Bergen as your gluten-free. Then you actually put it in your mouth. Then you start buying it. Then you start being a regular user, and then you become loyal. You start telling people, hey, you guys should try gluten-free. So how does Tim get you from hostile to loyal? They, they talk about this as like a funnel, and along the way, these are all these roadblocks you've got to get over, and they use levers, levers to get you over each roadblock. To get you from hostile to open, basically it's social forces. All right, meaning you start falling into friends who are also using gluten-free bread. So you become less hostile to think, well, I thought it was for wallies who are hipsters, and, but my friends aren't wallies, and they're not hipsters, and they're using gluten-free. So you start thinking there might be something to gluten-free, but it doesn't have to be Bergen. You know, all these other brands make gluten-free. It doesn't have to be Bergen. But then you start seeing promotions at the supermarket advertising... And then someone starts handing out some Bergen bread to you. So you think, okay, so there's some trials. And then they give you easy access. They discount Bergen bread. They put it at eye level at the shelf thing. And then you might have a crisis as well. Suddenly the doctor says, hey, you need gluten-free in your diet. You know, right now you're very unhealthy. And then, as you use it, you start noticing benefits. Hey, I do feel better. Uh, My my health is better. So you start noticing benefits. And then you might become, you start behaving like a gluten-free user. You might even wear the T-shirt that says Bergen. And now you become loyal. So he said the same thing happens in evangelism. Because he was hostile. Tim was hostile. But then social forces, you start falling into friends. Who, what, what might social forces be? Yeah. Oh, you just got to have Christian friends. So we're always thinking, how do we tell our friends about Jesus? Well, if you're their only Christian friend, they're never going to become a Christian because you're the one schmuck in their life. Uh, so, but, but, but if suddenly they have 50 schmucks in their life. So you guys have all heard the story. I won't go into it. Not oh, yeah. the Jupiter story. The what story? The Jupiter story. We don't have time for it. No, no, no. no, no. no. Okay. <laughs> So what you need is lots, lots of schmucks that yeah. you can invite your Christian friend, your non-Christian See, friend too, 
so that he thinks, hey, maybe schmuckism is normal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's more, it becomes more imaginable. It becomes more okay. believable. It always was true, but now it becomes more plausible because there's a critical mass of trusted friends who also oh. believe it. So, so basically, the next thing is this easy access. Somehow they've got to have easy access to the gospel. They've got to have felt needs being met. So I'll tell you what we do. City, yeah. City Bible Forum. This is a bit of a shameless plug. But oh, okay. is it? I yeah, know. no, no. Wait, okay. So if people have Christian friends at work or colleagues, whatever, come and hear this baldy-headed guy or this Asian guy teach the Bible. Oh, no, no, not, not the Bible. Happen. We run a thing called Real Dialogue. Now, what is it? Uh, one of our guys is a part-time movie critic. He gets cheap access to new release movies. Come and watch Hacks or Ridge or, or Risen or um, whatever, you know, whatever movie New release for free. For free. And then there'll be a 10-minute oh, panel with me on it. Yeah. Deconstructing it. Hey, so how good is that? you've got a couple of movie critics so that's, and Samo. That's like promotions, trials and easy access to now, the Christian worldview. Now, is it evangelism? No. But what it's saying is, do you know what? That, those Christians are okay. And that little Asian guy... He had some wisdom. That made sense. Okay, so you do that two or three times. Yep. Now, they did it with Hacksaw Ridge. If you've seen that, it was easy. They did it with Planet of the Apes. That was a bit more of a stretch, I thought, but anyway. Um, <laughs> next thing, we're about to start... Mark, can you do the... Um, okay, we're about to start a thing called The Edge. Now, watch this. This is the Christian worldview applied to current issues. Uh, you've seen the TED Talks. We're actually... We're almost... We're right on... Yes, okay. Is, it, is there another one? That's it? Ah, oh, that'll do. Okay. Um, what was you, okay, we're aiming at the 20-somethings uh, to 30-somethings. TED Talks. Um, it'll be a 15-minute talk by a couple of experts and then a panel with guess who on it. And it'll be looking at different issues. So this time... Every panel needs a short Asian on it. No, yeah, I'm not I think short so. Asian. Um, uh, it's 10 years since the iPhone came out. Everyone's addicted to it. They certainly are in this city. How's that affected our world, our families, our kids, that sort of thing? We've got two expert speakers who are Christian, a panel. Is it going to be uh, a whole gospel thing? No, but our aim is to get a second date. The next thing along the line is we'll offer to read the Bible with people one-to-one. Uh, we've got Bible shots, Bible teaching, come to an evangelistic thing. But we're just trying to move people along the continuum so that each invitation or we're after a second date. Okay? So that, that's our aim. At the end of it is seriously reading the Bible with people one-to-one, Bible talks, mm. that kind of thing. But if you're right over here and you say, come to a Bible talk, they very often say no. Now, how do you, I would humbly suggest, where you are, it's worth having that kind of process worked out. Christmas carols, used to, or I guess, still is the easiest. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Christmas carols, the church soccer team, all that. That's all, you know, um, easy, easy access should be up, up there somewhere. But so typically we might complain, but the gospel never got preached at the kids' playgroup or the church soccer team. No, no, it's all part of this process. So I think that it, it's too narrow to say what's pre-evangelism, what's evangelism based on what's heard. It's actually all part of the, the continuum. It's a multifactorial thing. Yes. And look, guys, I've got to say for years, I've been turning up at churches preaching the gospel in my heart, you know, talking about sin, Jesus, the cross, repentance, heaven and hell, and there have been no unbelievers present. And so I feel better as I drive home. Everyone else, our conscience is assailed. We go home and no one's heard the gospel. I'm sorry, the, those who have, uh, the Christians who were there did them good. But in terms of seeing new people in the kingdom, it, so you've got to start, we, we've got to start doing the background work to actually get people to the point where they will come and hear the Bible with open ears. That's the, yeah. 
Yeah. So my friend Tim pointed, by the time someone actually sits foot into your church, they are way down here. They're like, that's like the guy having bought the Bergen bread and started using it. But for that to have happened, a lot of pride work had to happen. Yep. Now, we're just making it up as we go, scratching our chins and bumping into things, but that's just a suggestion. Yes, sir? Prayer? Constant. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a good Calvinist. So you pray, God is sovereign, um, pray all along the, every step of the way. Okay? Um, and then we get busy and, and do whatever we can as well. So I'm not saying give up on prayer, and I still, you know, Jesus is God, hell is hot, forever's a really long time. I, I still believe all of that. But you've got to get people from, I will never, I, the, we have moved, I'm going to say more of this tomorrow, we have moved in this city anyway, the big umbrella, from being harmlessly irrelevant to we are the bad guys. And we've got to start winning the right to be able to get, expect people to listen to the Bible. And that pray, a lot, yeah, absolutely. But we've got to start thinking through how do, we, how do we do this. Just come and hear the Bible, the number of people that I work for is, is diminishing. Yes, sir? Do you think we've, we've been doing that, what you just said there, I've reminded me of something we used to do, or we have... ...about how much you had to know. Like how much do you have to know before you can become a Christian? And so there's this moment where, yeah, you've heard, you sort of understand, ah, but now you believe, and now, you, now you're a Christian, now you grow in your knowledge of Jesus. But now, now they talk about it's a two-dimensional gray matrix where if that's knowledge, this is the heart. Here you're closed to the gospel, but here you're open to the gospel. So you have to be here to be a Christian. And now they're realizing more and more, this is the journey to faith. You have to open the heart, and then they're open to the knowledge. Whereas before, we've kept thinking, we've got to give them knowledge. We've got to give them data. We've got to give them more data. But until we open the heart, the data doesn't get anywhere. And maybe, and I could be wrong, maybe most Westerners are up here. They think they have all the knowledge, but their heart is closed. So if we keep giving them more knowledge, their hearts are still closed. And maybe most Asian Australians their hearts are open, they just don't have the knowledge. So when we come with the gospel, bang, they're ready for it because it sets them free from their superstitious dark past. And that's why there's so much fruit in Asian Australian churches. We just preach them the gospel and bang, they believe. And then why, why can't we replicate this? Because in the West, they think they know the gospel, but their hearts are closed. So we can't just give them data. We actually have to open hearts as well. And we still believe and all that other stuff. That's right, because... Just like God supernaturally, God supernaturally parted the waters, but Moses still had to raise his hands to make it happen. It's all about getting, I have a phrase, you've got to get our friends to become their friends. We have two universes, Christian universe and non-Christian universe. we just got to merge universes. So our non-Christian friends now have a critical mass of Christian friends. So that the gospel, which has been true all along, becomes more believable. There's a reason why if you run a, a youth group on a Friday night in a regional country town and only three kids turn up, it just feels so unbelievable. They're the only three kids in the town who believe it. Then you bring them to a Katoomba kick conference where there are 2,000 youth moshing for Jesus. suddenly becomes more believable because there are 2,000 other people uh, who believe it. So somehow it's all about getting that critical mass of believers in our non-Christian friends' lives.